to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We read earlier this morning about fearing the Lord. And to show that we fear Him, let's stand together as we read, as I read to you this fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Please stand together. Let me read to you. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Amen. Remain standing for prayer. Holy Father, in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ and with his power and authority, which he has placed in the churches, bless the reading of your holy word. Amen. Heavenly Father, cause us this day to speak and to hear and to understand by the power of your Holy Ghost. Yes. O Lord, let us not fear man, but fear thee. Let us not hate a little bit of discomfort given to sinners, but let us hate sin. Amen. Let us not love one another to the compromise of our love of thee. Right. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. There is none holy as the Lord. Amen. And we bow ourselves before thee and pray that you would teach us of your holiness, that when we come into your presence, we would be as Simon Peter in that first great encounter with your son, Jesus Christ, when though blessed abundantly, he fell at his feet 
and declared, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Let us all realize our sinfulness and thy holiness, the great distance that there is between us, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover that distance with his blood. But that your church is too important as the body of the Lord Jesus to have sin in its midst. Bless us, Heavenly Father, to stand upon Holy Scripture and that alone. Bless us now, I ask, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I have read in your hearing. It's not that difficult of a chapter. It's a chapter dedicated to one theme. It's the subject of church discipline or church judgment. Four months ago, I preached to you three messages about church discipline and never finished them. I want to finish it this morning. I am working on a manual. I am so close to completion. But the Lord has given me a spirit that is difficult to bring anything to completion because there's always one more thought that can be added. And so now I'm over 60 pages in a manual to show you what the Bible teaches about church judgment, lest we be led astray with all the ideas of men or all the little questions that pop up in everyone's head. This subject is complex enough, though it be simple, that it led to great trouble in our congregation eight years ago. I I hope I have answered all the questions that could be asked, were asked, and that if you were to sit and spend a week that you might come up with, because I've spent several more months, even though I had a pretty good version of it four months ago. But I want to finish preaching it to you this morning, because I want to deal with several new aspects. Let me review briefly 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because I have learned painfully at times that repetition is key to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because things are forgotten so easily. Right. There was never any doubt for any who paid attention eight years ago what this church believed about church judgment. Right. None. It had been practiced thousands of times and it had been taught numerous times. But let me review briefly 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the word of the living God. Amen. First of all, in the first verse, we have a gross sin of fornication. There be some worse than others, and this is worse than others. The Gentiles were notorious for fornication, as we learned by implication in Acts 15, because one of the four rules that that council sent out to all the Gentile churches was to abstain from fornication because it was rampant among Gentiles. But a sin like this wasn't rampant among Gentiles, but it was here in the church at Corinth that a man had his father's wife. And it was well known everywhere. It was commonly reported. Many were talking about it. Remember that. This is a public sin. I'm not going to review all that I've taught you this morning because we have new ground to cover. And the Apostle Paul rebukes this church because they were puffed up. what What could they be puffed up in when they had such an incestuous sinner in their midst? 
They were puffed up in the blessings that God was giving them by the Spirit in spite of their sin to that point. Because in chapter 1 you will read that they came behind no other church in their spiritual gifts. They had more speaking in tongues and gifts of prophecy than any other assembly. And so they were puffed up. They were puffed up in love. We are so loving here that we're able to forgive, forget, and accept this brother. They were so puffed up in pride that they were going to protect this man, whoever he was, maybe of position in the church, maybe not. But they were puffed up when they should have been mourning. And my first point to you this morning is, we need to be mourning sin whenever it occurs publicly in our church. And that mourning is not feeling sorry, sad, or disturbed by the one sinning. It's to mourn the fact that we are offending the great God. If we truly fear Him, we will be grieved, which is to mourn. We'll be grieved and angered because there is sin publicly in our congregation that is offensive to the great God. If the church of Jesus Christ is truly the body of Christ, is it? Amen. Should be the Bible tells us that it is, then for us to allow sin publicly known in the midst of that body is high treason and high offense against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to mourn over it. We must be disturbed and angered by public sin that becomes known in a congregation. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the second verse. And he's rebuking this church that they hadn't become angered and grieved over it and put this man away already. That he would have to write them to tell them how to do it and to do it. And he says that even though he was absent in body, 1 Corinthians 5, 3, he was present in spirit. And by the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that the Spirit could be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Whenever we read the words such and one, that is telling us we have the general rule. Right. He's not just limiting it to that specific situation, but he's using that demonstrative word such, which means, and all other sins like this one, or all other sinners like this one, this is how they're to be dealt with, in the name and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them again in verse 6, your glorying is not good. The fact that God is still blessing you, the fact that you think you all love one another, the fact that you think you're a great church because you're able to receive sinners is not good. Your glorying is not good. When there's sin in a congregation, there should be anger. There should be grief about that sin offending God. The great emotions should be the emotion of jealousy and of zealousness for the Lord of hosts, not for the one sinning. Now we love the one sinning, and we always want their recovery, but that is always secondary. I hope that you'll remember the sermons I preached to you entitled Righteous Indignation, because I want you to remember men like Phinehas. Phinehas was a great man. Phinehas was a man that God honored, for a thousand generations. Because 
when the rest of the congregation stood there boo-hooing because Moses and the Levites had killed a few of their brethren. Phinehas took a javelin and went into a tent and dispatched two fornicators. Numbers chapter 25. Right. He was a noble man. He was a virtuous man. He truly feared God. And God took special recognition of him because he was jealous for the Lord of hosts. And that's how we ought to mourn, so that glorying is not good when sin is in a congregation. And verse 6 goes on to explain, Don't you know, know ye not, that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Sin allowed to stay will infect the whole lump. And so we put it out to keep the lump pure, as verse 7 tells us, because Christ has legally made us pure, let's make sure that practically, as a church, we are pure. So he says in verse 8, let's not keep the feast with old leaven of malice and wickedness. If there's malice and wickedness in an assembly, put it out, so that when we keep the feast of the Lord's table, we keep it without any sin, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Hopefully, when we assemble around the Lord's table, as we did last Sunday evening, we do that only in sincerity and truth, without malice and wickedness. He then says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. That means 1 Corinthians isn't truly in every sense of the word. 1 Corinthians, it's he had written to them before. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. We are not to have company with sinners like that as a matter of practice and habit and of close relationship. There's necessary relationships, and they're allowed. Otherwise, we would have to go out of the world. But now he is writing to narrow this point down for them to understand it relative to this brother. I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. There's that word such again. A demonstrative word meaning or any similar sin or sinner is to be put out of the assembly and we are not to company with them. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? The only ones, Paul said, I truly have to address are the ones that are on the inside. But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. There's only two places you can be. You can be in the kingdom of God in one of his churches, or you can be in the kingdom of this world and in his great big church. There's only two places you can be. And when you're put out of the assembly, you are turned over to Satan because you're put out in the world because Satan is the God of this world. And he's the prince of the power of the air. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in brief. Brethren, we live in horrible times. We live in the perilous times prophesied in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. These perilous times come with great prosperity and great peace, but they have a form of godliness without any authority. No church disciplines anymore. That is a general rule. The exceptions are so few you can ignore them but we're not going to be like those churches. Amen. We haven't been, and we, shall, we will not be like them in the future. 
We live in a horrible time where everyone is puffed up for all sorts of reasons and they do not want to judge sin in their midst. But if we're the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be like the Spirit of Christ. Amen. And the Spirit of Christ hates sin. Amen. Jesus Christ loved righteousness and hated iniquity. That example I gave you of Phinehas was set forward as an example of a righteous man. Right. He was justified by his works. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31. The disciples of Jesus are to be known by their love one to another. But that love one to another can never compete with the love for God. And the love for God means we need to keep this body pure. That's why we have church judgment and church discipline. We never judge out of a vindictive spirit or hatred toward the brother that we put out. Nor did this church. They're told why to do it. And that's to keep their communion pure. Right. It's to mourn. Not for the man, it's to mourn for the God whom we are, whom's we, whose we are. So we keep his body pure by putting sinners on the outside. Brethren, we have an adversary. We are in a spiritual war. Right. Look in your Bibles just briefly at Revelation chapter 12 for a prophetic picture of the war that we're in with the enemy of the churches of Jesus Christ. The saints of God have had an enemy since they called on the name of the Lord in the days of Enos. And our conflict is spiritual. It's not physical. I just want to read one verse to you here. Verse 17, the last verse of Revelation 12, which is a description of Satan being cast out of heaven at the victorious exaltation of Jesus Christ over him. He was cast out into the earth and when he was cast out into the earth, he knew that his time is drawing nigh. So he made war against the woman, that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman. That's you. That's us. Wroth with the woman. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Brethren, the testimony of Jesus Christ is kept and maintained in this world by us. Right. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen. We keep the testimony of Jesus Christ, and we keep the commandments of God. And so Satan is at war against us. So sin is going to arise in our midst. Didn't Paul warn the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that, yea, some will arise even from you elders that will be wolves in this flock. But don't you, he said, don't you remember that I've warned you day and night for three years that this is going to happen? We're told that there must be heresies among us, that they which are approved might be made manifest. That's 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 19. In these perilous days and times, where is the spirit of Phinehas? When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Amen. Is he going to find it here? One point that I did make in the past is the importance of repentance, and I want to review that just briefly because some people get so confused about what real repentance is. Let's look in our Bibles at Job 33. Job 33. Repentance 
is such a key issue to dealing with sin. But true repentance is not easy. Because true repentance is a gift from God. You can't work up repentance whenever you feel like it. God gives repentance. A wicked heart will reason this way sometimes. Well, I'll go ahead and sin because I really want to do this. But as soon as I've done it, then I'll ask the Lord to forgive me. That is the worst of all presumptuous sins. And there is no promise in the word of God anywhere that he's going to give you any repentance on the other side of that sin. You are presuming and tempting God in addition to the sin that you're engaging in. Fear such foolish, wicked, heinous thinking. Because repentance is not easy to obtain. It's a gift from God. In Job 33, here's how repentance looks at sin. Whenever you do sin, here's how you should view it and speak to the Lord about it. And here's his blessing. I read in Job 33, 27, that God looketh upon men. And if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man. Brethren, there is the formula, if you want one. It's in the Bible. It's a Bible formula. Job 33, 27. I have sinned. I have perverted that which was right. I took what you made beautiful, God, and I screwed it up. Right. And it didn't profit me. And if a man will do that in sincerity... The Lord will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Now I want you to come to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's read another definition of repentance that truly clears a person or a church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it's clearing a church, but it applies to individuals as well. Because the description here is the difference between worldly repentance or sorrow and godly sorrow. You know, there's sometimes you're sorry because you got caught. And then there's sorrow because you've offended the great God and you want to make amends for it. 2 Corinthians 7 and 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. True repentance isn't going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. True repentance doesn't do that. That is weak repentance that isn't godly sorrow. Because godly sorrow is based in the fear of the Lord and doesn't allow for back and forth, back and forth. It's a gift from God. And it's a sufficient gift that you're not going back and forth, back and forth. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. They're sorry, and they do it again. They're sorry, and they do it again. Verse 11. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. And here's the definition. And if we or you accept anything less, then assume the risk. 
Because you're accepting someone without godly sorrow. Because here is God's definition of godly sorrow. What carefulness it wrought in you. What a worried character it wrought in you. To be careful for something is to be very worried or anxious about it. What carefulness godly sorrow brings. You are so worried and anxious about clearing yourself. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, anything possible you were doing to clear yourself. You didn't need to have everyone tell you how to clear yourself. You wanted to do it, and you could figure out what needed to be done because you wanted to clear yourself. You didn't want to excuse yourself, defend yourself, hide yourself. You wanted to clear yourself. Yea, what indignation. There is anger, and you are upset about the sin, not about those who caught you, not about those judging you, but you are angry about the sin. Yea, what fear. There is a great fear in such a person that they would ever do it again. There is great fear in the fact that they have offended the great God. Yea, what fear true sorrow brings with it. Godly sorrow, godly repentance. Yea, what vehement desire. A desire built with fire. Incredible desire. To do anything, everything, to clear oneself of a sin. Vehement desire. You can't state it any stronger in our language. Vehement desire. Yea, what zeal, what energetic efforts will appear when a person has godly repentance. Yea, what revenge. You are out to stomp on that sin that you committed. Everything you do is an act of revenge against that wickedness that you were in. Yea, what revenge. And that with an exclamation point. And the apostle continues that verse, In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Bless God for his word. We believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Well, here's the prophet. There's the definition of repentance. And if it doesn't measure up to this, it doesn't matter how many tears are shed or how many words are spoken. Words are cheap. We all know that. That expression isn't even worthy of the Bible. Everyone knows that. Words are cheap. Actions are not. And these are serious actions. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. Those Pharisees and Sadducees wandered out to the Jordan River when John was out there baptizing, and he saw them coming to his baptismal services, and he lit into them. And he told them, bring forth works and fruits meet for repentance. Don't come out here thinking you're going to participate in this in any way, you sinners. The fires of God are being stoked right now to burn all of you up in his furnace. The axe is now laid to the root of the tree. That is not what you'd call a warm invitation. But he saw that they they did not have godly sorrow and repentance. We read in the word of God about godly sorrow and repentance. We read about Zacchaeus. We read about Mary. We read about soldiers who would come to John the Baptist and say, What shall we do? They were willing to do anything. Lay down their arms and run the risk of being killed by the Roman army? What should we do? That's the zeal of true repentance. 
Now remember, what I taught you is this. When we look at sin in the Word of, in the New Testament, there are three questions to ask. Does everybody, could everybody right now write down on a three by five card the three questions to ask about sin in the New Testament? Is it large or small? Is it public or private? Is there repentance or is there abstinence? We have three variables with two options for each variable, which means there are eight possibilities. There are eight possibilities for every sinful situation that occurs in a church. This is not my favorite topic. I told you that three Sundays before. I'm telling you again. I have to preach this this morning to cover this subject And then I'm going to put it in writing, and hopefully that'll be enough for you people to remember what the Lord's shown us about this subject. But this is what we must remember, because sin is going to come up in a church, and we want to deal with it scripturally. I would much rather be exhorting you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength this morning. But this is part of it. Part of the love of the Lord is protecting his body from known sin. And how to do it in a way that pleases God instead of man. I hope that you'll remember those eight possible situations from those three questions. What is exclusion? When we exclude a member, what is it? You know, if you were to go to most seminaries today, or visit most churches and ask their pastor or their deacon board, what is exclusion? Most would not be able to give you an answer because they've never seen it, studied it, or done it. Because that is an indication of the perilous times of the last days. Men would have a form of godliness, but they would deny the power thereof. There'd be no authority in their so-called godliness. They do a lot of talking about Jesus, a lot of singing about Jesus, a lot of stained glass about Jesus, but very little of the authority of Jesus Christ. And that is to judge sin. Remember how he cleaned out his temple because they had made the house of prayer into a den of thieves. And so he gives us rules on how we are to take care of his supper. What is exclusion? It is publicly identifying a sinner and putting him out of the church membership and ending his access to the Lord's table by unanimous corporate action. We don't vote at exclusions. What's there to vote about? This blows the minds of most churches because they've been, they're drunk. They're drunk on the lie of democracy. We are a theocracy under the Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) Jesus Christ is king and I am his ambassador and that's all I am. I am your servant as his ambassador. Jesus Christ is ruled. He's told us what sins and he's told us how to do it. There's no voting. We do it unanimously because we all agree that Jesus Christ is right and the sinner is wrong and he's to be put out. Oh, what churches could have been spared so much grief if they'd have just understood that. But they leave it up to the poor little feelings of the poor little people. And yes, without the grace of God and the authority of his word, do you know what we all are? We're all little idiots. That's why we have the word of God. And that's why we need to learn it and remember it, because it's we want to obey it. It gives us light for our feet and a lamp to our pathway. It teaches us about righteousness and teaches us about correction. 
we put a we put a brother outside this assembly, and we did it last Sunday evening. We put him outside the hedge of this church where God will judge him, because there's a line drawn around this body. Not so much around the assembly, though we do pray for that, that the Lord will protect our assemblies from Satan, but around the body of members that make up this church, there's a line drawn. On the inside, you're a member of the body of Jesus Christ, and under the protection of God and his blessings, you're being prospered and blessed out of Zion by the Lord. Outside that wall, you are in this world, which is the domain of Satan. Remember when Satan took the Lord Jesus Christ up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time? And Satan said, all these are given to me. Was he lying? No, he wasn't lying. They were all given to him. Jesus Christ would have corrected him for his lying. There was no lie there. Satan understands that. He's been given the kingdoms of this world. He manipulates them, moves them, and directs them as far as God allows him. So we put a person out, we put him on, we turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Our goal in putting out the brother we did last Sunday evening was for his salvation, so that when Jesus Christ comes, which could be imminent, his spirit will have been saved by being humbled before the great God and repenting of his sins. And by the grace of God, if Jesus Christ tarries, we're able to witness and see that and to take him back into our communion as the fornicator was in Corinth. He was taken back in in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It's a punishment inflicted of many. The pastor doesn't do it. The majority doesn't do it. It's the many of the whole congregation. 2 Corinthians 2 tells us that. I can't exclude anyone. You know, so many people worry about pastoral authority. Can't exclude anyone. Exclusion and reception of members is a congregational activity that requires a unanimous decision on the part of all of you. Pastor can't do it. He can only take you to the water. He can't make the congregation drink. He can lead you to the water of God's word, showing you this is what ought to be done. And if you defy the word of God, then you can look for a new pastor. <coughs> if you show me sin that I'm not dealing with, then I can be looking for a new congregation. But there is no lordship by the pastor over his people. What is restoration? Restoration is restoring an excluded member to full fellowship, forgiveness, affection, and comfort after they have cleared themselves from their sin by godly repentance. It's the opposite of exclusion. It is the end of their time of punishment outside the church. It is the receiving of an excluded sinner back into the communion of the church and a rebaptism by the Holy Spirit of them into our body once again. It includes all the actions and the consequences that we observe when we take a person in the first time. It's just that we've measured particular repentance for particular sin before we take them in. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where we can see it described by Paul. (coughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is reversing the order of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, he gave the rules for exclusion 
and the instruction of how to do it. Now look what he says in 2 Corinthians 6. There's, you could read the first five verses, but they're not important, as important as to what I want you to read right now, so that you can get the whole context. You can read them later. Verse 6 says, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. The punishment that this fornicator had undergone between the first epistle and the second epistle was sufficient for his case. And that punishment had been inflicted of many. See, Paul didn't inflict the punishment. He had rebuked the church for not having inflicted it before he wrote. It was their job to inflict it. And he says in verse 7, So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. Thank you. Please observe verse 7. So that contrary wise, when Paul now is telling them to restore this brother, he is changing the way they've been treating him. Contrary wise. Now do something very different from what you've been doing. Show this brother forgiveness and comfort and love. Do you know what that tells you very plainly? While they're excluded, they are not to be shown forgiveness and comfort and love. That comes at restoration. It's called a punishment. It doesn't matter what you have witnessed in the past at other churches. It doesn't matter what you think about how someone ought to be treated. This is the Word of God. It is a punishment, and forgiveness and comfort and love are not to be shown until the time of recovery. And what is the limitation by these verses? The limitation is, lest such a one be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Verse 7, lest such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Godly sorrow that works repentance is what we're talking about here. Do you think Paul is describing worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? Godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. Can there be too much godly sorrow? Not in intensity, but there can be in duration or extent. It can be too long. Because there... If a person is showing the zeal and the vehement desire and the carefulness of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, and there was no forgiveness or comfort or love shown to them, it would eventually drown a person. And it says right here that they could be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, despair. Do you know that you all understand this because of the Bible verse that's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 and in Colossians chapter 3 where it says, Fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and provoke them not to anger and not to discouragement in the other epistle. Do you understand that? In both cases, a father... In both of those epistles, a father has to look at the discipline of his children and make sure that what he is doing is for the profit of their souls and he's not being too hard and too harsh on them or they would despair. Now the little child that is screaming out while he's getting beat, Oh, mommy, 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 I'll never do that again. Oh, mommy, it hurts so much, it hurts so much. Oh, mommy, I'll never do that again. That is not godly, nor is it sorrow. 
It's called pain. And you don't listen to that. You look at the soul of that child and, and gauge with wisdom that God gave all parents and especially all fathers to know when they're disciplining a child too much. And it has nothing to do with that noise and squawking. When you hear noise and squawking from a sinner, it is an absolute indication there isn't repentance. Any squawking from a sinner is no repentance. Because if you have vehement desire, zeal and revenge, and wanting to clear yourself, the last thing that would ever cross the brain cells up there is to squawk about your situation. All you can think of is clearing yourself. That's godly sorrow. But when a person has true godly sorrow, and it is consuming his soul to make peace with God and to make peace with God's people, he could be left in that condition too long, and it would swallow him up. And so there's a father in the congregation without that title, please. There's a father in the congregation that makes a judgment as to when that punishment should end. And the congregation should be content and satisfied so that a unanimous statement can be made that a person can be taken back in. Restoration is a congregational action directed by the pastor. It's not a vote again. We all have to be unanimous about it that someone has clearly shown godly sorrow and repentance. If we're in doubts about it, then we wait. Because there won't be any doubts. Listen, if you saw the repentance of 2 Corinthians 7.11, would there be any doubts left in your mind? What a description of repentance. Let me go back now and just briefly review how excluded brethren are to be treated. We've had a problem in this assembly in the past, and we still have a problem in this assembly. I'm not going to go through all the verses again. I'm just going to state to you what the verses all say. You've heard them before, and they'll be in the outline. They are to be clearly identified. We do that, don't we? We name them. We're not to keep company with them. That means you are not supposed to be having social interaction with a brother that has been put out of the assembly. Necessary social action, fine. Because there are still family and employment relationships that have to be upheld, but not unnecessary social interaction. We are not to keep company with them. That's 1 Corinthians 5. We're to avoid them, Romans 16. Mark them which cause divisions divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. We are not to eat meals with them. We are to withdraw from them. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 We are to avoid normal social activity with them. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 Our treatment must leave them ashamed. (coughs) We have this pity button inside us that wants to feel sorry for the sinner. The whole problem that exists about the treatment of excluded brethren is that your pity button inside for the sinner is bigger than your pity button for the great God. Without sin, we wouldn't have a problem with this issue. I wouldn't even have to teach it again. It is always because you love the person more than you love God. Because if you loved God, you would hate that sin. 
And you would want that person punished so that they wouldn't do that again for the glory of God. Not because of the poor little feelings you had during the moment of exclusion. And I'm not trying to ridicule any. But I'm an ambassador for the Lord God and for His Son, Jesus Christ, and your little feelings at the moment of exclusion are irrelevant. How about the feelings of the Lord Jesus Christ who's been stomped on by one who has taken His name? Our treatment is never to be vindictive or revengeful. We're not to treat them as an enemy. 2 Thessalonians 3.15 And yet they must be ashamed. If we are not treating them in a way where they're ashamed, we have not done our job. We have not done it right. Our treatment is to be, is a punishment. Second Corinthians 2, 6, right here in front of us. Our treatment must include brotherly admonition. Admonition is to put somebody in remembrance of their duties. And to exhort them to those duties. It does not include forgiveness, comfort, or love. A sinner doesn't need comfort to repent. A sinner needs the grace of God to repent. A sinner needs to humble themselves before a holy God to repent. A sinner needs comfort when they've repented sufficiently to clear themselves. Our treatment of excluded brethren does not, for, does not include forgiveness, comfort, or love. When does restoration occur? Restoration occurs when there, has suffi- when there has been sufficient godly sorrow and repentance to show that the flesh has been destroyed in, a, in that particular matter, in that person's life, and the spirit has been saved and they are close to being swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Now, we have a problem in this church. Because 20 years ago, we were taught something by a Bible speculator. And we're going to undo that this morning. What we were taught is that when we exclude someone from the assembly, we put them out for a year, and when the year's been covered, then we take them back in. And what's been done by that very convoluted way of using the Bible is to set aside God's definition for repentance and instead make the calendar the dictator of when someone comes back in. There's several problems with it. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. Let me show you where it came from. As a minister, I have this responsibility. Hold fast the faithful word as I have been taught. Notice it doesn't say to hold fast every word that I've been taught, but the faithful word. Because what I've been taught is not valuable at all if it's not the faithful word. I want to hold fast. And I've continued to practice this for a long time, though I haven't believed it for a very long time. 1 Corinthians 16. This is the first epistle that we have in our Bibles. And it says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And he goes on to explain what he's going to do with that money they collect. Now, you'll observe from 1 Corinthians 16, the first three verses, that the Corinthian church had not been taking this particular collection and that they were to start upon the first day of the week. He doesn't say the next first day of the week, but he says upon the first day of the week, 
This church is to begin taking up a particular collection, not the general collection for the service of God's ministers, but for the poor saints in Jerusalem, because Paul said he's going to send some brethren to pick up this amount of money and take it off to Jerusalem. They weren't doing it. He tells them to do it. Now come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He is speaking about giving here. You can see that in verse 9 he refers to Christ's giving for us, who through his poverty we might be rich. And he says in verse 10, And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. <coughs> what this verse connected with 1 Corinthians 16 shows, what? What does it show? It says they've been collecting money a year ago. Now, does that tell us that there is one year's time between 1 and 2 Corinthians? No, it doesn't. What's the mathematical expression we would use? One year or greater than. The minimum amount of time is a year. But we don't know if Corinth began collecting it the very next Sunday. And if it was a Sunday, what day of the week did they read this on? Was it that Sunday or was it the next Sunday? Was it six months later when the church finally got convicted that they began putting into practice what Paul told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It doesn't tell us that there is a year between the two epistles. That is, there is no proof there. The only thing that is proved here is that the Corinthians took up the collection one year before this epistle. That's all. There is nothing about church judgment or discipline whatsoever. There is no rule that a year is of any value to any church for any reason not even forgiving. All he is saying is that the Corinthians, I want to commend you that you were forward about this matter a year ago. With those two passages, okay, well, I'll show you the, the third. It just backs up 8.10. It's chapter 9 and verse 2. For I know the forwardness of your, the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago. And your zeal hath provoked very many. What was Achaia ready for? The reception of a member back? No, there's nothing about church discipline here. Nothing. There is nothing about a year of being of any value. All he's saying is that you Corinthians got serious about giving for the poor saints a year ago. That there was a minimum of one year between the two epistles, no man can deny. Can any man prove that there was less than three years? You can't prove anything from it. From these two passages, they further speculate that the fornicator was repentant for the whole year. A further speculation. Can't prove that. That fornicator might have only been repentant for one month. You say, well, how would Paul have known about it? How did Paul know about it if he was repentant after he wrote the first epistle? He was in communication with those brothers and sisters on a regular basis. There were physical bodies going back and forth between Paul and his party, wherever he was staying in those churches on a regular basis. That's why there are so many names listed at the end of the epistles. Because Paul had so many friends that traveled back and forth to communicate with him about the state of the churches. When did the fornicator begin to repent? 
We have no clue. We have no clue. We do not know. Do you know the only thing we know? The rule that we're going to live by. Godly sorrow to the point of almost swallowing him up, but clearing him instead. That is where we're going to rest. Not on a speculation about this year. The year is not used about church discipline at all. And the year isn't used in any meaningful way. It's simply saying, you Corinthians started your collecting a year ago. Once you start down this path of a year, and God knows that our hearts were right when we did it. What if a person relaxes in their repentance during that year and there's a three-month hiatus in the beginning, I mean in the middle of it, where they're not showing godly sorrow and repentance? Do we tack three months on to the end of the year so it's now 15 months? You end up in this calendar gymnastics that is not taught in the Bible. Right. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to tell you something about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not a vague writer. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. And I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. Right. Church exclusion and church reception are important matters. Amen. Is 1 Corinthians 5 rather detailed? Yep. Are there other passages of Scripture written by Paul that back up 1 Corinthians 5? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8 rather specific? Yes, it is. Are there other verses of Scripture defining that godly sorrow in other places written by Paul? Yes. He writes, none other things unto us than what we can see and acknowledge, not guess at. These speculations are combined to create a major rule of church order, which we don't see taught by the Apostle Paul, and to start an interpretational method that we don't use either. And that is to take disconnected thoughts and force them together to come up with an interpretation of a passage. We do not study our Bibles that way. Let me give you a few more examples of those Bible speculators to remind you of their excessive liberty and license in using the Word of God. They have preached sermons that the minimum number of people in heaven is a certain number that you can calculate in a calculator because of a verse in Revelation that says the multitude that is there is a multitude that no man can number. Now, what man lived the longest that could have numbered the most? Come on, help me out here. Methuselah. So you take 969 years, multiply it by 365 days, by 24 hours, by 60 minutes, by 60 seconds, and you've got yourself a number that it's the minimum number of inhabitants in the kingdom of heaven above. Am I? Do I have witnesses in here that have ever heard that before? Yes, thank you. They will go to 2 Timothy 1.13, which has been preached to this congregation, 2 Timothy 1.13, where the Apostle Paul told Timothy, hold fast the form of sound words. And define the expression, the form of sound words means the right and left justification of the Bibles you hold in your hands. That holding fast the form of sound words is a description of the printed Bible because it's formed left and right 
by justification in the left and right margins. We don't use our Bibles that way. We don't go into the book of Isaiah and find a verse there about eunuchs being called dry trees. Hopefully you can all understand that expression. And use that expression to prove that the Ethiopian eunuch that was baptized in Acts chapter 8 verse 37 was made an automatic member of the church at Jerusalem. That came out of our church baptismal membership controversy. Now the examples I just gave you do not prove my point. The examples I just gave you are to remind you of the great liberty that certain men take with the Word of God. We do not go around looking for obscure things like the use of the four-letter word year in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and apply that to church discipline. We go to where Paul's dealing with church discipline and look at chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians verses 6 through 8 and see there that a man has sorrow. We then ask ourselves, what kind of sorrow does he have? Is it worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? If it's godly sorrow, we have it defined by chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. And the Apostle Paul says that that kind of sorrow can swallow a man up. And Paul Paul has already said in chapter 7 that that kind of sorrow can clear a man. So what we look for is the clearing of a man before he gets swallowed up. And at that point, we give him comfort forgiveness, and love. That is how we interpret it. Our goal, by the grace of God and by the Word of God, is to save sinners that we put outside our congregation. And we want to be praying for God to give them repentance. And when we see it, we want to rejoice at it. And when we see it clearing them, we want to start to get ready to thank God and to take them back into our number and to celebrate with the angels in heaven. Full clearing of oneself might take longer than a year. And it might take a whole lot less. Do you know what it depends on? The Spirit of God granting repentance, but the nature of the sin. There are some sins that you could clear yourself of very quickly. Let me give you an example from the Bible. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was an extortioner. Zacchaeus had a financial problem. He jumped out of that sycamore tree and was instantly shorter than anyone else there. But he jumped out of that sycamore tree and the whole crowd began to murmur when Jesus said, I want to go to your house for supper. Zacchaeus hears this murmuring crowd and God did a work in his heart, brethren. God gave him repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. He said, Lord, I sell half my goods to feed the poor. Right, right now, I'm taking half of my goods, and I'm going to give them to the poor. And if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. Do you know what Jesus said to that kind of repentance? Today, salvation has come to this house. Because that's a financial matter. You don't, when, when a man who's had a financial problem, just think with me, brethren. This doesn't require pastoral wisdom, does it? Think with me. A man who has a financial problem, if he chooses to sell all of half of his assets and give that money to the poor, that means just flush it to the poor. And he's willing to take any accusations that he has wronged anyone else and restore fourfold. Is that man serious? Is that revenge? Is that zeal? Is that carefulness? Is that clearing of yourselves? That brother would not take long at all. Now, what if a man had wandered in and out of our assembly and was guilty of forsaking the assembly? 
Could that man clear himself in one day by saying, I won't miss any more assemblies? No. We'd want to watch for a while. And what would he do? Would he be late? He'd be early. Would he miss? What if he had the sniffles? What if he had a headache? Would he be there? He'd be showing his zeal. And we'd measure him as soon as we could. That he had cleared himself before he was swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. I love the Word of God. Amen. But I want to stand on the Word of God, and on the Word of God only, I don't care who taught what in the past. Even if we have to swallow a great bunch of crow and humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, we're sorry, and Lord, we love your Word, and Lord, we're going to stand on it. Amen. Restoration depends on pastoral judgment leading you all to be unanimously content that a brother has cleared himself altogether in a matter and is about to be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. There is a great degree of judgment in the matter. A great degree. There's a great degree of judgment in taking members in the first time, and there's a great degree of judgment in putting them out, and there's a great degree of judgment bringing them back in. And what we want to do is rest upon clear definitions of the Bible. And you know what? Every father knows how to do this with their children. Every one of you fathers have the implicit knowledge, understanding, and wisdom to know how much you can discipline your children for a particular offense without discouraging them or making them angry. And a pastor can do that in a congregation. How to treat excluded... There are several things I wanted you to hear this morning. How to treat excluded brethren. We haven't done it perfectly. We need to work at it better. If we love God, we'll do it right. Because we will be angry and we will mourn. That mourning, I want to say it again, it's not about the sinner. That mourning is about the sin that's polluted the body of Jesus Christ. The second thing I wanted to tell you is we're undoing that one-year artificial, convoluted limitation on receiving a member back in. And we are going to take sinners back in based on them clearing themselves with godly sorrow before they're swallowed up by it. Paul's definitions when he's dealing with that subject. The third thing I want to close with is to answer the question, is it right to cover sin? It is bizarre to me that this question even is asked or that has to be answered. You all do it every single day. I don't understand. Of course it's right to cover sin. Anyone led by the Spirit of God has an instinctive nature within them to want to cover every sin they possibly can. If the sin is private, not a public scandal, if the sin is private and there's repentance in place, what else do you want to do with it? You all do it for your families every week. Oh, brethren, what if, I, what, if, what if we were to take this not covering sin to its logical, consistent extreme? No, there'd be no church, and all you men need to stand up right now and tell us all about the failures of your wives this past week. Did any of your wives defraud you this last week? Then all the women get to give their opinion about their husbands. You're covering for each other every single time because there are sins in every family, child disobedience, spousal problems, 
And all of it is buried beneath the blood of Jesus Christ and Christian charity between one another. Amen. You bear all things and you cover it. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't matter whether it's a small sin against man or a large sin against God. Covering is the reflex action of a child of God. Amen. You do it all the time to your family members, and we ought to do it in a church. Right. We excluded a brother last Sunday evening. You know what I said at the Lord's Supper one month before. Did I tell you the truth? When I said that that particular brother was absent because he was with friends, did I tell you the truth? Absolutely, I told you the truth. But what was I also trying to do? Cover. So that that brother could be recovered, brought back in a week or two, be sitting there, and no one would ever know. And there's so much of that that goes on in a church of Jesus Christ. But no one would ever know. It was with pain we come to that second Lord's Supper. And all of you are beginning to wonder among yourselves, what's happened to that particular brother? Why isn't he sitting with us? And so then it becomes public. What do we mean by covering sin? Where proper repentance and conversion has been shown, the sin is forgotten and it's not revealed to others. And to reveal it to others is to be whispering and tail-bearing. The exact opposite. And yet... Brethren separated from us who believe that sin shouldn't be covered, but do they practice that? Why don't they all get up every Sunday, every time they assemble, and tell everyone all their sins? You say, well, some sins are more serious than others. Show me that in the Bible. You know, if we're talking about sins against God, show me that in the Bible. Some of the lists that God creates, it baffles my mind that they're all connected together, but that's God's definition of sin. Amen. Because high treason against an infinite being is an infinite transgression. Right. Hey, it's sin against God. Amen. It's sin against God. This particular thing is sin against God. Maybe you have some particular, for some reason, hatred of this particular thing, but see, God's got a particular hatred of them all. Amen. And we need to have that same spirit. Did God ever cover sin? What did he do with our first parents? Immediately went to work covering their shame. Immediately. Covering their shame. It's his glory to cover sins. The Bible tells us that. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. Did Jesus cover sins? Oh, wouldn't those Pharisees have loved Jesus as a prophet of God to have given all the details of some of those public sinning women that came and washed his feet and anointed his feet, Jesus Christ could have opened up their souls and their history better than they could even remember it and just told all those men all the salacious things that they would have loved to have heard in their wicked, sinful hearts about what those women had done. And do you know what Jesus would do? He would just condemn the Pharisees that were sitting there that were despising her, and he would say, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Amen. Go and sin no more. Right. I love a Savior like that. Amen. Is that great? Amen. Is that great? Amen. What do you call that? You call that covering sin. Right. Do we believe in covering sin in the church of Greenville? Amen. Absolutely. Because God covers it. Jesus Christ covered it. I'm just giving you a few. Why didn't Jesus Christ ask that thief on the cross to bear his soul? 
He said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. But I don't even read of of a confession there. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. How else are men like David and Samson and other sinners included in Hebrews chapter 11? Unless God covers sin. How does Samson get into Hebrews 11? I don't think he belongs. That's why Jesus Christ is your Savior and not your pastor. He is able to cover sin. It's wonderful. Samson is in there. Right along with Abraham. We were talking about Abraham and Sarah this morning. They both laughed when God said you're going to have a son. They're both in there. Thank you, Lord. Wow. David was still lifted up as the king by which all kings were to be judged. Even after his sin with Bathsheba. Even after his murder of Uriah. Even after numbering Israel and costing 70,000 lives. Even after moving the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way and costing the life of Uzzah. Even after not training his sons very well. He's still, because God is merciful. God looked at his overall character in that man when he did sin, and it was pointed out to him, repented. Is it scriptural to cover sin? Galatians chapter 6. Hurry with me, I'll, I'll be very fast here. Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself. What kind of a pronoun is thyself? It's a singular pronoun. This is an individual action. Exercise toward a man overtaken in a fault. If this was a corporate action, it would say, Consider yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This applies to all of us, but it's an action done individually. Right. When someone sins, no matter how grievous a sin, and it's private, and they repent, you cover it. You restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, not a spirit of condemnation, not a spirit of condescension, but a spirit of meekness, lest thou also be tempted. And you restore that, brother. No one ever knows. Look what Galatians 5 says about doing that. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, Notice, individual action, one-on-one. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one, convert him. This is not church action, but private action. Let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. When we see one another, if we see one another, hopefully we won't even have a chance to exercise Galatians 6, 1 and 2 or James 5, 19 and 20. But if we were to see a brother or a sister in a sin, overtaken in a fault, and you're able to warn them, rebuke them, and they repent, restore them in a spirit of meekness, bring them back to a place of fellowship with God and of love of righteousness, you hide a multitude of sins. Those sins never become public. You never talk about them ever again. They're buried under the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. Amen. Proverbs ten twelve, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is as a burning fire. Right, 
He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. True love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. First Peter 4.8 And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Amen. It's not if, it's when. There will be sins, and charity covers those sins. I am done with the subject of church discipline. Here's your responsibility. If you have any questions about what I've preached four months ago and what I just preached today, please ask me. Please ask me, and I'll try to answer your questions to the best of my ability, and I will make sure that they're included in my book that's coming out. I want us all established in this subject so that there's no disagreement. We all know where we stand. That's your first responsibility. Make sure that you understand where we're, where the position we're taking on the restoration of sinners and of any other aspect of this subject. Ask me so that it can be clarified. And I'll include the answer in the, the outline that I'm preparing for you. The second thing I want you to consider is that we have a brother that needs to be restored to this congregation. And I want all of you making sure that you are content and satisfied with that, along with your pastor. Your pastor is very content with that and wants to see his restoration as soon as possible. This past Lord's Supper was farther than I wanted to push it. So your responsibility is twofold. That, to make sure that we, are, we have an understanding on the Word of God on this subject and that you are satisfied with a brother that you know who I'm speaking about. May the Lord be praised. Amen.